Hey, good evening, everybody. Welcome to church. My name is Matt Moberg. So glad you are here. Hey, can we just do it? Oh, gosh. I don't know if Christian said it already. I'm going to say it again if he did. We've had some technical difficulties tonight. Did he say it already? We're all running on one mic. Not a lot of um, audio versatility, I guess is what I would say. And so we're going to do the best we can. Part of me wants to just turn this mic off right now and have a family conversation because there's not a ton of people in here. Can we scoot forward and do that? Is that preferable? Can we just look at a text tonight? Please step up right now. Let's just do that. I hate talking on this thing when there's a small crowd. What's that? Okay. Well, come forward all the same. We're going to run this thing like so. Honestly, part of me, um, as much as I will file a beef and complaint around nights when the audio goes whack like this, this is our first time here doing this. Tyler, love the hair flow. That's a new thing for you. It's working out well. You're the same age as me, and you have twice the hair flow that I'll ever be able to attain. I love it. Not jealous at all. Part of me loves, though, the low-key environment that is this. And it's actually fitting because the Sunday after Easter, and it's called traditionally Low Sunday, which... We don't, etymologically, we don't know why we call it Low Sunday. There's a lot of different theories, but the running joke, which actually, when I say it out loud, is not very funny. Brad, look at this. Low Sunday, because not a lot of people come to the Sunday after Easter. Don't laugh. It's not actually funny. Okay? It's not, it's tragic, is what it is. But we are in a season right now, and we're starting right now on Low Sunday, where we are stepping into the lectionary rhythm, where we're going to be carried by the traditions of the church and the scriptural readings as such. Before we do, though, because I think it's a little bit of like, what can we walk out of this space with tonight that's going to make us more equipped to face the trials of tomorrow or the mundane moments of tomorrow or the good moments of tomorrow? We want to make sure you walk out with this. Who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Three times this week, that's come up from people calling me, from people that I've met with we're that baseline keynote reminder. Let's recenter ourselves on this one consistent reality that who you are as a person far outweighs anything you do as a producer or performer or whatever it might be. Who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Now, last week at Easter time, we had a moment. We went and we looked at what did Easter mean to Jesus' best of friends the one that he stayed up late at night and made a pen pal with, the Apostle Peter. And tonight we're going to carry it on because part of me like left in the, in the aftermath of last week is going like, we, I feel like it's a redundant story, at least from my perspective, where it's really good. There's a lot of nutrients we can derive from that. Like Peter and Jesus, the betrayer, the one who turned his back on him not once but twice but thrice, the one who said, like, I have no idea who that man is. The one who, like, prior to that said, I'll never abandon you, forsaken you. I got you all the time. And then he didn't have him all the time. For Jesus to go and find him while he's out fishing in a boat and say, like, you're still good. I'm still going to call you friend and not the forsaker. I'm still going to see you as one of mine. You're not done yet. There's more mercy in me than mess in you. Is beautiful. Peter, though, I'm curious. I, I get what it might mean to you. I get what Easter might mean to you from that relational standpoint. Your friend that you love died and then undied. But what does it mean to the rest of us? Well, in AD 81, we think. We don't really know. First Peter was written. This apostle Peter, best friend of Jesus, 
starts to write to a church, and he says, here's what the resurrection means. Do you guys ever wonder that? Am I the only one? I'm okay if I am, but like we have these big, these big like fanfare, Easter egg, Selly to the wall, like we go all out for Easter because Jesus rose from the dead. But then the follow-up question of like, but why do you care, Jerome? Is <laughs> like, well, Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> But why do you care? Why does that actually matter? Like, who cares? I mean, like, I do care. Like, Jesus went to the heart of all of our fears, made it through somehow on the other side. God vindicted him. Like, God made it so that, like, this man is the man. This is the face of God on planet Earth as we see it. And so to look at him is to look at God. And what we see is that he went to the heart of the fears, the death itself, made it through on the other side. But at the end of the day, real time, why do I actually care? outside of like being the thing that we are told, according to Paul, that we should care the most about. First Peter, when Peter sets out in maybe AD 81, AD 81, he uh, tries to answer that question. It reads like this, First Peter 1, 3 through 8, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, nor spoil, nor fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Heaven is a word that we tend to like tie to the afterlife, the place that we go when we die. When all things are settled and done, we go to this place. What Peter is saying, though, in the Greek word would actually employ is it's a here and now. It's accessible. It's with us. It's eternity starting now. It's that perspective that sets in where you are right now on a Sunday night, not quite out of winter, not quite into spring. Heaven is accessible to you right here. The inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And in all of this, you ought to greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ revealed. Patty, can you go two slides back, please? Yeah, that one right there. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So we're going to do a wingable sermon tonight. No, I need to hold my mic. I was going to set this thing down because I want the intimate affair, but that's not in the cards. I was just reprimanded by Patty. You want me to hold it closer, Sheems? You want to hold it for me? Wow. Never thought I'd have a volunteer in that direction. Can never perish, spoil, or fade. The slide after this says that, you know, it's even better than the thing that you thought was worth the most, gold. Because gold is really good. From age to age, generation to generation, gold is always like when we think about the things that are worth the most, gold tops that ladder, but even gold will perish when the fire does arrive. So there is something that Peter is trying to allude to. If you want a reason to celebrate Easter next time it comes around, if you want a reason why you put the pastel colors on and get the peeps out of the shelf, if you want a reason why you're excited about this day and why you claim it as victory, and when, when Christian leads us in songs that sound like celebratory and you're not sure why, this is why. There is a hope that you can cling to that is not perishable, it is not vulnerable to decay, it will not spoil, it will not go away. What does that actually mean? I told my wife this afternoon, for whatever reason, and maybe it's because, actually I really don't know, for whatever reason, 
One of the memories that comes to mind for me is in seminary a few years back, I was in LA and it was a hard day because it was a full day of classes and not hard because I was facing any kind of you know, peculiar trials or tribulations because I don't sit still very long, case in point with the wandering. But I did that day and there's one break in the day where they said, you have one hour to get out and catch your breath. And so I did. Now, most of the kids, maybe all of the kids in my class, and they're not quite kids because I'm not a kid either. I got to move beyond that. These 30 plus a year adults, okay? <laughs> These fully grown adults who are near retirement, um, we were, they, they found like a nearby patch of grass where they could rest their head and catch their breath and get a quick nap in before the next class resume. I, on the, on the other hand, said, okay, if I have an hour of time, I'm coming from like the darkness of Minnesota winter, take me to the beach, take me to Santa Monica, Monica, whatever is closest by, get me to the beach as soon as possible. And so I called the Uber. I have one hour. I said, what's, what's it going to take to get me from here to there? And the guy said, $40. And I said, of course. Sign me up. 25 minutes later, we get to the Santa Monica beach. I sit on the sand for 15 minutes. Then it, the same guy that dropped me off, he actually waited it out because he goes, you have a class here in about 30 minutes. Drives me back for about $60 total. The guy cut me a deal. <laughs> he goes, I went to the beach in that space in between, and I started to wonder when I was reading this text, why would I ever do such a thing? Why would I want to grab a piece of that sand to sit in front of the ocean in that brief space that I have? What is the logic behind that? Well, part of it is like at the time, I didn't know any better. I thought it was like an intellectually rooted decision that I was making. I didn't know that I was impulsively reckless. Found that out the other night when in the span of 60 seconds, I went from researching a cramp on WebMD to looking up on Craigslist how to buy a pet wolf. And so I know that that's something that I, is part of me. I know that now. I didn't know it prior to. But in that space, I just felt like I need to go see the ocean while I'm here. I cannot have my nose in books the whole time. I can't be sitting in a class all this time. And so I did it. And so, yes, one answer to the question why I did it is because I'm impulsive and I'm bad with money, all of the above, yes. But also, what was the drive behind me doing what I did on that day? I know this is a dumb story, and it's not great. There's not like a big punchline. I know you're all like holding your breath going, where's this story going? My point being is that what I realized in the aftermath when I brought it up to my professor and I realized the error of my deeds is that we are all born as a people in search of some kind of permanency, and so we want to grab onto the thing that will last beyond us. Oceans. Mountains. Projects, hopes, aspirations, the things that seep beyond our days. We are all pulled into the ocean, we're all pulled into the mountains, but the problem is, is that the oceans and the mountains and the things that we think will last, the things that we think are like strongholds till the day we die, they're not. Everything erodes, everything withers, everything that we think will be here forever is not actually the case. And so we are facing this life that is governed by the laws of entropy, but we have these hopes that are looking for something that is enduring. Hopes for something that will go beyond where we are right now. I don't know why my mind went to this story, but it did, and it still is there. 
because I'm thinking about this morning when I was picking up my kids' toys, and there was a toy that I picked up in the corner that was filled with all kinds of dust, and it was the same toy on Christmas morning that my kid said, I need or I will die. <laughs> I mean, honestly, there was one moment where my kid took the Sharpie out of our closet and said, if I don't get this toy, I don't know what life will look like in the aftermath of it. Now that we have Paw Patrol chasing the go, and we got it, and we wrapped it up all kinds of ways, he thought at one point that if I don't have this one piece of thing, this ocean, this mountain, this thing that will be permanent inside of a land that is ruled by erasers, if I don't have that thing, I'm going to miss the point. I'm going to miss the thing. And then he got it, and now today, it's April 16th. It's collecting dust in the corner. Is my ADHD off the wall right now? Are you following what I'm saying right now? What I'm trying to get at right now is the things that we think that we are banking on, the things that we think we are one opportunity, one purchase, one purchase away from actually finding absolution, ab uh, abundance, fulfillment, peace. We get it. We clench it, and then it crumbles. It doesn't actually last. Now, first Peter... When Peter puts pen to paper in A.D. 81, he is talking to a people who are on the run, a people who were born into the same kind of context that you and I are born into, people who are living with the same kind of desire that wakes us up in the morning, drives us from here to there in the afternoon, the same kind of people, but now they've lost it all. Everything they thought they wanted, everything they thought they needed is now gone. And Peter says, not like, let me go ahead and name your pain. Can we come together and name some praise? Can we lift up a praise to God who is merciful? Not because God is glad that all of your gold is gone, but because God is glad that you have come to know that all gold is going to go. Everything that you thought you were clenching onto, everything that you thought would bring you some kind of peace, abundance, whatever it is, it doesn't actually provide. The bark never provides a bite, if you will. Peter says that you are born into an inheritance in the aftermath of Easter. The empire did what they could on Friday. Christ got back up on Sunday. And the only thing that you have to cling to now is the fact that there's nothing to cling to here. The things that you think that you're one step away from actually bringing you peace. Because hands in the air right now. Do you, do you ever like scrolling the internet, feeds, social media, whatever, thinking like, man, I am like one step away, one business move to make, one person to get with, whatever it might be. And if I get that, if I do that, if I make that, I'm good. Christ is the abolishment of it all. The game's up. The curtain has been torn. It's all been exposed. It's all been So what Peter says then is like, because of the empty tomb on Sunday, you now have a living hope. Now, mind you, if he's going out of his way to, pro to provide some kind of descriptor on the flavor of hope that you are holding, when he says living hope, that tells me that by implication there must also be a dying kind of hope. If there is a living hope, there is also a dying kind of hope. And the dying kind of hope is the kind of hope that I think most of us spend our lives in pursuit of. Most of us wake up thinking like we are that one thing away. You know, we could talk about this 10,000 times. We could talk about it in 10,000 different ways. But I think it's... <sighs> Am I getting too comfortable with you right now, Maggie? Pardon me, it does feel like it's the core problem that we are consistently facing again and again. 
and I, again, I apologize if I'm projecting, but that sense that I'm one thing away from being where I need to be, that sense that I'm like one, if I can get to the other side of this thing, then I'll be at the thing. Peter's addressing that, saying those are all dying hopes. It's all elusive. Your reach is always exceeding your grasp, and the moment that you think that you have it, it's gone. There's a reason why the great prophet, um, Sophia Loren, she says that the main emotion of the American adult is disappointment. Because you keep staying on that chase with parched lips and dry throats, we keep running after the thing that we think that we need. And Peter says, stop. Now, what's interesting about First Peter's words here, the man who was, you know, best friends with the Christ, is he says that the trials that are coming your way, the hoops and the hurdles that you're having to drive through, the things that you are facing, think about it real time. Not just you doing this obligatory church move, but you actually think about the real trials, the real tribulations, the real troubles that you are facing right now. Christ says, according to Peter, that the reason that you are facing those is to pr prove the genuineness of your faith. Now, growing up, I was thinking like that's like judge Jesus. Like the high appointed chief sitting on there ready to smack me down if I didn't actually carry the cross the way that he saw fit. If I don't do this right, the test is before me, eyes are all on me. If I fumble this thing, it's going to prove once and for all that I'm more fiction than fact, more bark than bite. I don't actually have what it takes. That's not at all what Peter says. Peter is the one who addresses God, and the main characteristic he derives for God is one who is of mercy. The genuineness of faith is not about your practice of the faith or your holding of the faith. It's about the hope that you are holding in truth. There's a reason why people who were once enslaved and people who are showing up for the first time at AA and people who are serving life sentences in prison, there's a reason why they are so easily inclined to accept the reality of the gospel, and it's because they've tried the different lies of the world. <laughs> they thought, if I chase after the hope, whatever, it's all false. It's all a facade. They're not going to be duped as easily as, of, as the rest of us who are trying to chase after those things still. There's a reason why they're more soberly able to access the reality of God and come to the truth of the matter where it says, like, all is fading, all is fleeing, all is fleeting, all is dimming, all is going to eventually be gone. But there is something that is imperishable. There is something that will not dim. There is something that will not spoil. There is something that will not go away. And so I invite you, I implore you to place your hopes, your future, your sense of a story and direction that you have in your hands into something that is bigger than the circumstances of your day and the relationships that you hold. If you don't do that, you'll be like this, disappointed, let down, frustrated. This isn't just a Christian thing. This is every wisdom tradition would proclaim this truth. Every philosopher and therapist would say that this is so. They would claim that affirmation. There's a whole book in the Bible, Ecclesiastes, that is about this thing where you're chasing after the wind. You read Ecclesiastes front to back, and it sounds like there's some guy that's writing the book who's wearing like a, a black turtleneck and always smoking cigarettes. He's a philosophy major, and he's talking about these wise things. But the fact of the matter is that guy, the pen behind the book, was intensely rich, had everything at his fingertips, saw it all through, and found it all to be wind. Nothing worth chasing. 
Peter is saying, if you want to know what the joy is to be found for you in the aftermath, it's who you are is more important than what you do. Even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. What you do is not as big as you think it is. The impressions that you make, the following that you gather, the business that you create, the products you produce, the things that you think you are doing to fill that stat line, all of the above and some. It's not what you think it is. Everything you need is already here. Your pockets are filled fat with God's treasures that are fireproof. They will not perish. They will not spoil. They will not decay. And if you want to actually access Jesus' abundant life that he promises in John 10, if you want to actually tap into that and not just recite those lines at church, come to peace with that. Reset the future of your story in the context of God's promises. For me, especially in the past couple of years, coming to the end of myself has not just been like thing that I've chosen to opt into. It's just been a fact of reality. I've had to. And when I've done so, that bottomed out reality have found good foundation, good rooting to be found inside of. And my prayer for our community is that we continue to be those kind of people who say, we're not going to be chasing after what's hot, what's next, not necessarily opposed to it, but our foundation is not built on sand, it's built on rock. And because of that, we're going to find the true thing that our heart desires, not the next thing that our heart thinks it needs. C.S. Lewis, he says this one thing, and let me close with this. The Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself desire, which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Hold true to who you are. Christ, you are good. You are the one who provides over and above for all of our needs, all of our wants, all of our issues, all of our things that we try to hide from you, whatever. God, you are good. You're, you're sufficient. You are consistent. You are the one that we bank on. And Lord, I just pray, God, that you would help us to reroute ourselves every Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, in the truth of who you are, not who we think we need to be. That you would give us the courage of our convictions, God, to say that we are enough, that what we have is enough, that we believe in the gospel story and not the lies of next day news. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Because of audio technology. That would have been a fun moment, though. I, I love this idea that a living hope that's not perishable. And I think Matt's right. And I'll speak from my own experience, that somehow we think that we've got it, that we're grasping it, and that we get it, and then you realize, oh, that isn't the living, lasting hope, the hope that comes from beyond us, the hope that's not quite so tangible, the hope that we can't quite explain. But boy, we need the reminders. I know I need the reminders over and over and over again. A lot of us were saying um, a few days ago, it was so beautiful. Gosh, don't you wish you could always live like this where you're so grateful, like for the beauty, the warmth, the sunshine? And then, you know, after a few days of that, well, okay, it snowed again. This isn't a good example, but, um, but you forget. And that's part of why we come together. That's why we're in relationship. We need to remind each other of this living hope.
And I was thinking so much during Matt's message about the ALS fundraiser on Friday night. Living hope. I mean, here, here we have three people, two women and a, a male, who one that lost a husband to ALS, our dear Linny who, and family who are living with ALS, um, the sweet Kevin, young Kevin and his wife. And here we all are gathered around this horrific, horrible disease. And we're experiencing living hope through these amazing people because they're close to the divine, because they remind us that at the end of the day, what really matters is love of God and love of one another. And it's really a beautiful thing. And that's why we need to come together on Sunday nights so we can remind each other over and over again, this matters. And we follow a God we follow Jesus, who on the night before he was arrested, he sat at a table with his people and he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body and I'm breaking it for you. And he took a cup and he poured wine into that cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. The new covenant for everyone. And so when we take that bread and we dip it into the cup, we are reminded that we're loved, that all this matters, that God moves so far beyond all of us, and that we get the reminder over and over again of an everlasting hope. We invite you up during the music. There'll be communion servers here, and you can take the bread and dip it into the cup um, and just come on up during the music. And with that, I'll ask you to stand and together Pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hey friends, as we close out this space, will you close your eyes, hold out your hands, and hear the echo of God's heart in these words. No matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you've stayed, please know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you as is right now are beloved child of God and beloved you belong. Let's go Wolves. We'll see you next Sunday at Park Tavern. Thank you, Maggie.